Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, I'm Jim Salverson. Happy Friday. Not that Fridays are any different to any other day of the week at the moment. It's (laughs) Groundhog Day every day. Same stuff, same four walls and the same Football Social Daily. Still bringing you a new show every single day, keeping you in the loop with all the latest Premier League news and still the only daily Premier League show there is. Also, the same old war horses on Football Social Daily (laughs) today. Steve McNaughton and Nama Corn on the podcast. Howdy, chaps. All right, boys. I I knew you weren't going to pass up that opportunity, Jim, to go same old boring faces (laughs) on the podcast. I didn't say boring. I didn't say old. (laughs) Just just, just, it's nice to have the team back together again. (laughs) It's been a long, drawn-out week of life this week and also a long, drawn-out week of Premier League football. Games thick and fast, fantasy football deadline lines missed for everyone so it seemed fitting that the final game of this game week would wrap up with a nil-nil draw as Arsenal's mini recovery stalled against Crystal Palace. We'll discuss who is the happier manager out of Hodgson and Arteta shortly. We're also going to be talking penalties after Marcus Rashford admitted that under Jose Mourinho when Jose was at Manchester United he was trained to be smart when in the penalty box. Is that wrong? Is it a dark art? Has it given Manchester United an unfair advantage in getting to the top of the Premier League this season? I'm sure Liverpool fan Steve McNaughton will have a view on that one shortly. And we're going to be talking about the transfer window as well. We are one week in now and there's some interesting rumours that are gathering a bit of heat. We're going to talk about new strikers at West Ham. We're going to talk about the future of Dayet Upamakano. And we're going to talk about Everton's potential spending power this window. We'll do that at the end of today's podcast. But we should probably start with last night's game. The big positive for me from last night's game was that none of the players broke COVID restrictions celebrating goals because there weren't any goals. There was no high-fiving, no hugging each other, anything like that. That was the kind of my big takeaway from it. Other than that, is there anything that either team will really take away from last night's game, Niall? 
I should probably say it's Arsenal versus Crystal Palace. I didn't mention that. It was, <laughs> it was Arsenal, Crystal Palace, nil-nil. Does it matter when it's a nil-nil? It I'm doesn't sure. really, does it? Um, you're definitely right. I think there would have been a lot of people sharpening the knives, waiting for footballers to congregate together after celebrating scoring a goal. But obviously that never happened. I'll be bluntly honest with you. As you say, it's been a long, drawn-out week this week, both in life and in football terms. There's been games all week. January seems to feel like it drags on for an eternity compared to the rest of the year. So I'll come clean and say after 20 minutes, I turned it off and switched on <laughs> 1917 and watched the movie instead. So was it my, good? It was very good. It it's yet. the second. It, you should watch it, Jim. It's decent, to be fair. I will recommend it to you because... I saw it in the cinema when it first came out, was very impressed. And although you know what happens now when you watch it the second time around, still very, very good. Um, and I tell you what, talking of 1917, that game felt like it was being played in 1917 as well. I was not enthused at all after the first 20 minutes of the game. It just wasn't doing it for me, mm. which is a shame because, you know, we talk about the Premier League as being this cut and thrust, high octane, fast paced division in Europe and arguably the most competitive and arguably the most exciting in Europe but sometimes you do get games like that and I think it might just be a byproduct of the weird season that we're having where you do see sides like Manchester United going losing 6-1 to Tottenham then beating Leeds 6-2 uh, beating RB Leipzig 5-0 in the Champions League uh, and yet they're top of the table um, and they scrape past Brighton on the first day of the season so you know we'd, we'll talk about um, penalties and things like that a little bit later on but it's all kind of weaved itself into the narrative of what's been such a strange season in terms of taking positives out of the game Arsenal can take a positive that they didn't lose again and Crystal Palace can take a positive that it's another point in their inevitable mm. search for survival this season in which they no doubt will stay up. So, I mean, pretty much that's all I've got to say about the game, really. I mean, you say Arsenal didn't lose again. There's been a little bit of a mini recovery happening recently. I mm. think it's three in the league. I think it's four in all competitions they've won now. So there have been these steps forward from a club that was arguably in crisis. But a few weeks ago, I think Sam Allardyce claimed that Arsenal were in a relegation dogfight, which I'm not sure was quite ever, rea ever a reality. But you look at the game last night, Steve, and it wasn't the most engaging of games, but probably if you look at the chances, Palace maybe edged it a little bit in a game that you would have expected Arsenal to have controlled and won. So is it another case of it's one step forward for Arsenal and two steps back in terms of their progression under Arteta? You've, you've just took the words out of my mouth, Jim, you know, when you said that. <laughs> uh, so you've completely uh, ruined my link, uh, which is great. <laughs> Do you want to talk about a film instead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll talk about uh, 1917. Oh, we've done that, haven't we? Uh, no, I just think that... I, let, let's be honest about it, lads. Uh, you know, Arsenal are in a... Um, they've got, they're trying to rebuild. Young manager who's going through the mill. Still some in that squad, if we're going to be brutally honest about it, that shouldn't even be getting a game or putting the Arsenal shirt on. And I think they're going to get that because, you know, uh, my club's been through it, you know, where we had to make changes. And we you go through that pain barrier of, of having mini revivals and winning three games and thinking, right, we're turning the corner and you get a bit of a setback. And it was a setback last night. Arsenal should be comfortably beating Crystal Palace at the Emirates with the quality that they've got in their squad. And a Crystal Palace team that does leak goals as well, as we know. And I just think it, it's part and parcel of, of what they're going to go through. And I think... The hardest thing where Arsenal are concerned is tempering the expectations of the fans because this isn't a quick fix. It, it's going to take two or three seasons to get them where they want to, they, they want to be and more signings coming in and big earners going out and 
um, sticking with Arteta and, and having a brand of football. And unfortunately, results like last night are, are going to come a few times this season. I think we're a little bit dismissive of Crystal Palace sometimes. And you mentioned they have shipped a few goals this season. The season before, they were kind of known for keeping clean sheets and keeping very tight defensively. This season, they've conceded 29 already, which is the joint third worst in the league. But looking at last night's game and looking at how they've played this season, is there a bit of a development happening at Palace as well? Is Roy Hodgson breaking form and maybe being a bit more ambitious in his play, and we've seen the addition of uh, Eze into that midfield for Palace, who offers them another attacking outlet along her side, Zahar. So are we seeing a slightly... I mean, there's no doubt they still play the low block. They still park the bus to a certain extent. But are we seeing a slightly more ambitious, slightly more creative Crystal Palace this season, though? I think we had to, because we highlighted in the summer that Crystal Palace have got an ageing squad with the oldest manager in the Premier League. And I think we mentioned that on yesterday's podcast whilst previewing the Arsenal versus Palace game, that you know they, they do have players that are experienced, and Roy Hodgson loves players who are experienced. He's an experienced man himself, and he will almost certainly keep you up in the Premier League. But you know what you get with Roy Hodgson. And the Premier League now is... Although experience does count for a lot, I mean, you look at the likes of Thiago Silva and the impact that he's made in his first season in the Premier League, despite a wobbly start at Chelsea. And although Chelsea aren't exactly where they want to be right now, no one can doubt how good Thiago Silva's been, I think, since he's come in, probably the better of all the signings they've made for their 200 mm. million quid that they spent. So, And that was a free transfer. So, you know, it just goes to show how vital experience can be. But I think there is a possibility that you could have too much experience. You need these young, hungry players. You need these players that can be dynamic and win you matches. How many match winners have Crystal Palace got in their side? I mean, two seasons ago, when you mentioned that they were good at keeping clean sheets and they were good at grinding out those results, Wilfred Zaha was the key. He was the talisman. He was everything to Crystal Palace. Then he tried to engineer a move away, handed in a transfer request, never materialised, and I would argue hasn't quite been as good since then. Maybe some Crystal Palace fans would disagree and can set me right on that, but I think the stats would probably back me up on that one. Now... Crystal Palace without Zaha, it's something we talk about every single time that he's not in the team. How are they going to deal with it? How are they going to cope without their key man? And I think that that's an issue that they've got. They've they've pinned a lot on him and they need some younger, exciting, more aggressive attacking players. And I think when they've gone into the transfer market in the last two windows, particularly in the summer, they signed Eberé Eze from QPR, who was one of the hottest talents in the championship, with a view to try and solving that problem of having too many old players. And I think that they know that if they are going to stay a Premier League club and they are going to cement themselves in the top flight as a solid proposition for the foreseeable future, they need to invest in some better players and they need to invest in some younger players who are willing to stay at the club and develop. And, you know, we talk about clubs being selling clubs and stuff like that. I mean, Southampton are, are a prime example over the years where they develop young players and then they'll sell them on for, for more money. Um, maybe that might not be the case now that they're doing so well in the Premier League, Southampton, but certainly Crystal Palace wouldn't do too badly to take a leaf out of the out of the book of other teams around them. They've done it before in the past. Uh, I'm thinking of Wilfred Zaha originally when he went to Manchester United. Um, <clears throat> Nathaniel Klein as well was a player at Crystal Palace and he got sold and moved on. Uh, and there's loads and loads of players that I can think of that Crystal Palace's academy have produced. So I think that was a little bit of frustration amongst the supporters that the young players that were of talent in the academy weren't really being pushed in favour of those mm. experienced players. So maybe we are seeing a bit of a sea change now and whether that means that Crystal Palace finish 14th or 13th or 12th or whatever it may be this season at the cost of them bringing some young players through, 
I think that the Palace fans would be on the whole happy with that. Whether Roy Hodgson is the manager next season remains to be seen. Whether he's just putting building blocks in place for a more young core of the team for the next manager that takes over remains to be seen. But what I will say, in terms of estimated wage bills, Crystal Palace pay a lot of money to their players. A lot of money. And I think that that's a downfall that you get with... There's big earners in there, isn't there? There's some massive earners. Absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at the estimated wage bill here um, on a graph and supposedly Crystal Palace pay level wages with Everton, um, more wages than Leicester, West Ham, Aston Villa, Wolves, etc. So, and you know, you're looking at an established Premier League club in Palace, no doubt. But I I do think with those experienced players, you do get your benefits and you do get your pitfalls. And I think that the cost of wages is a pitfall, um, but the solidity you get is definitely a benefit. Whether we'll see a change in style over the next two years, I'm not so sure, but certainly it does feel that way that they're just starting to make that small shift. We talked about the incomings or potential targets for Crystal Palace. For Arsenal, we've mentioned many times that Arteta needs transfer windows in order to make this squad his own. There's a few rumours at the moment about who might come in. One of which is a goalkeeper who'd potentially, I guess, be back up for Leno rather than competing for that number one jersey after Runison's poor start in an Arsenal shirt. For me, though, it seems like Arsenal need a goal scorer. And I know Lacazette scored three in his last three until last night. Aubameyang just seems off the boil and Ketia seems out of favour at Arsenal. So do they need to go and spend a load of money on someone who can guarantee them 20 goals a season no I don't think they do okay. <laughs> um, it, it, to be to be frank about it I think they've got enough quality there and they, they've just got to keep plugging away at it for me Jim and um, when you've got the likes of Lacazette and, and Aubameyang um, in, in that team proven goal scorers Aubameyang's having a freak season really because throughout his career he's, he's scored healthy levels of goals and, and I don't yeah. think that his quality has fell off a cliff um, because he's having a bit of a barren spell at the minute. And I think they've got to stick with it. And Ketia is still very young. Um, his time will come. But I just think that they've, they've got to stick with it because I think um, unless they get some serious injuries up there, um, I think that, I think that's the only time really where they go into the market again. And I think they've got options in the squad where um, you know they can... Um, call on people should necessarily I think Nicolas Pepe would be quite interesting a bit further up top to be fair with the pace he's got and the skill that he's got um, because it's very clearly not working out wide for him is it and um, I just think where's the investment needed in this Arsenal team then if we're talking about Arteta making this team his own where are we putting it because I mean (laughs) is it defence is it midfield is it I mean Granit Xhaka had a great game last night so maybe he's working his way into the reckoning of the Arsenal team now it's in strength and conditioning. That's where they need to spend their money. <laughs> all of their players are injured all the time. Mm. It's it's like it's something that's happened at Arsenal since Wenger was there. And I know Wenger got loads of praise for the way he kind of revolutionised the professional game with the nutrition mm. uh, and the preparation for games. But I remember when Arsenal under Wenger would just have injury after injury after injury and they'd pile up. I don't know whether it's something to do with the turf at the training ground or something as small as that, but they always seem to have injuries. And we talk about goal scorers and and natural goal scorers. They've got a young lad called Martinelli at the club who's actually a very, very promising prospect. I think he looks better than Eddie Nketiah, personally. Mm. But he's injured all the time. Now he's gone over on his ankle. 
Um, I think he's back in training already. They thought it might be quite a serious ligament injury to his ankle, but he seems to be all right. But still, before that, he had a knee problem and uh, he's had all sorts of problems, Martinelli. And when he has played, he's looked really bright. So that's the one thing that would concern me, um, especially the young players when they get injured, because you don't know how they're going to respond from it. Um, Not someone like Harry Kane, of course, who gets injured all the time, but yet still keeps managing to come back and perform at a high level. When you're a young player, sometimes you don't know how to kind of deal with your body and especially when you're still kind of learning the physicalities of the game. Um, I think Martinelli's a good striker, and I'm totally in agreement with Steve about Aubameyang. I think that, you know, his record at Arsenal is prolific. His record uh, across the leagues since he's been a pro has been absolutely superb. So now having one down season, I mean, the the top, top world-class players of all time didn't ever have a down season, really, but they would have had down patches. And... I don't think Aubameyang would fall into that category, but certainly he's been absolutely brilliant for them. It's been an inspired signing. You think he's only been there a couple of years and he's already, you know, gone over 50 goals, I think, for Arsenal in in the top flight. So, you know, you have to hold your hold your hands up and, and tip your hat to him at the same time. And, you know, they do have players who can score goals. I think Steve's right, but fundamentally there is an, an, an issue there. Maybe it is worth them trying to throw a bit of money at it, but... I side with Steve. I I don't think that throwing money at a striker is going to solve the problem. I just think it's time that it's going to solve the problem. And and again, it's another point that Steve made really well that Liverpool had to go through it where they did have players on the pitch who could score them goals, but it wasn't happening. Um, and and you just have to kind of slog through it. And it it does almost feel that Arsenal need to already get to the end of this season, see where they're at, and take a look at things again in the summer unfortunately but you know I don't want to call the season a write-off for them because they're a big club with big ambitions but you know such as the way that the season has been so extreme and extenuating circumstances maybe it just will do them some good to take stock and mm. uh, and, and freshen things up. What is their ambition at this point then Steve because as Nar says halfway through the season I think we can talk about Palace and Arsenal's ambitions potentially this season I think Palace is probably remains the same and it's to be in that save from relegation mid-table if they're lucky kind of position with the best win in the world and the utmost respect they're not going to be kicking on for Europe so it's all about consolidation and survival for Arsenal however they clearly went into this season with ambitions of the Champions League but halfway through the season they're absolutely miles off the pace so do they still gun for that or do is it a case of going well Let's prepare for next season. Let's write this one off. Let's look at how we go again in the future. It's got to be European football, Jim. It's it's got to be. You know that that is a minimum requirement for Arsenal Football Club. And the six points off Everton in fifth, and you know that that isn't beyond the realms of possibility for them to get back in there. I think that you know there's 20 games left for them this season, and I think that they can try and force their way certainly into that Europa League reckoning. You know, Arsenal shouldn't be 11th at the end of the season and I don't think they will be. I think they will be higher than the, the current position. Um, so I think that's got to be the aim for it. But I think it's not really the time to massively panic at Arsenal because like I said, you know, I'm looking at the table now and the, the five points off uh, Southampton is seventh, um, you know, six points off, off Everton and... That that to claw that back is isn't beyond the realms of possibility. So I think they just stick in there. They keep working hard. Strength and conditioning, like Niall said, is a massive factor for them, and that's where the investment's got to go. And if they can sort the fitness out, and they can be a team that runs other teams ragged across the pitch and builds up good possession stats, I think you know they can turn it round. But yeah, I think Arsenal will be looking for anything between 
fifth and seventh this season. FA Cup obviously still in the mix there as well, which I imagine will be a bit of a target for Arteta to repeat his success in the cup competitions. If you want to find out a little bit more about Arsenal under Arsene Wenger and the strides they made in terms of looking after their players' health and fitness, there's an interesting podcast in our Football Stories series where I chat to Gary and Colin Lewin, who were the physios under Arsene Wenger for 10 years, as well as having time with England and West Ham. So if you want to check that out, you can search Football Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You should see it there from Sports Social. Right, we're going to take a little break. We'll be back in a second. And we're going to talk about penalties with uh, Manchester United versus (laughs) Liverpool uh, this weekend. It's high on the agenda. So we'll talk about that. Jurgen Klopp and Marcus Rashford's comments about penalties next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. This is Football Social Daily. It is Manchester United versus Liverpool this weekend. There'll be a full preview of that show on tomorrow morning's Football Social Daily, as well as looking ahead to all the weekend's action. But as it is the battle for the top of the Premier League, it seems kind of appropriate that we should talk about penalties. Jurgen Klopp (laughs) has suggested that Manchester United had... Jurgen Klopp has suggested that Manchester United have had more than their fair share of spot kicks in recent weeks. The same, to be fair, has been levelled at Liverpool by some fans as well. And now Marcus Rashford has stoked those embers by giving an interview saying that when he was playing under Jose Mourinho, it made him more savvy in the box when it came to winning fouls. First off, bit of a silly thing for Rashford to say this, isn't it, Niall? Going into a big game against Liverpool, I mean, if anything, he's going to be putting that element of doubt into the referee's head going into the weekend that he is smart enough to win a penalty in the box. Yeah, he should stick to what he's good at, like holding the government to account <laughs> yeah. and feeding kids, you know, rather than making stupid comments about football, something he knows nothing about. No, in all seriousness, um, it is a strange thing to say, but I think that that might just be a bit of mind games from Rashford or maybe even just a slip of the tongue I don't think Rashford's the sort of character you know he's the sort of guy who will take things on board in terms of improving his game no doubt because we've seen him do it over the years slowly in the four or five years now that he's been a Manchester United player but I think it was probably just a response to a question and all of these young lads now are media trained Um, uh, and so I don't I don't know why I'm not really reading too much into this um, it's up to the referee, really. I've no idea who the referee is, by the way, for this game at the weekend. I'm not sure whether, Steve, you might know who it is um, or who the VAR official is. But now that he said that and, and maybe those referees will take notice of, of what he said, maybe they won't spot it or pick it up. Who knows? But, yeah, I'm not reading too much into this one, Jim. It is a slightly peculiar thing for Rashford to have said heading into the biggest game of the season and, you know, the biggest rivalry that Manchester United have against Liverpool. So... Yeah, I can't see that making too much of an impact on the game, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the fact that he has been more savvy or professional, depending what you want to call it, uh, when it comes to winning fouls in the box, and that came under Jose. It's just a little bit of an interesting insight from Rashford, kind of lifting the lid on what his Mm. uh, relationship with Jose was was like. And, you know, I think that's an interesting debate to be had in itself, going down softly in the box um, to win a foul. Is it professional? Is it gamesmanship? 
I mean, what is it? What does it count well, as, in, to be it's honest? It's interesting that you use those two terms, that kind of savvy slash professional when you feel content in the box. Because, I mean, th- this is part of a bigger argument here, Steve. And it has been suggested from Liverpool fans that Manchester United have won too many penalties, from Manchester United fans that Liverpool have won too many penalties. And both teams come close to the top of the charts when you see how many penalties have been won by Premier League teams across the season. But... What's the debate here? What's the argument? The suggestion is that getting a penalty in a game is in some way cheating. But actually, isn't it just that if you have players that are skillful enough, that have quick feet enough to draw a foul in the box, then that's part of their game. That's what they should do. It's not that they've gotten away with it. It's that they've won a penalty that, they, that they've played for or that they've, they've, they've won with their skill and ability. Right, I'm just going to open some beers, Jim, to get into this. Um, <laughs> um, do you know what? I, I think, I think you, you know, football is, is all about small margins for me. And I think that if, if you're a player that, what did he used to say? They've said dark arts or if the streetwise, you know, one of these fossil pundits that are commenting on the game. Um, you know, he was a bit streetwise there, you know, to go down when with, with the contact and all that. And I just think it's part of the game. I think that the, the issue for me is that you don't blurt it out in public that, that that's part of the game. And I think it doesn't take a genius to work out that, that since Ollie's certainly been in charge of Man United, they have been you know prolific at, at winning penalties. And some of them have been a bit soft. Other of them have just been a bit clever. And I just think that, that that's just the way it is. And if that's part of their game plan, mm. whatever. you know. And I think... The biggest issue for me with all this is that when people start talking about it, I think that Marcus has, shouldn't have said what, what he said, and I think Jurgen shouldn't have said what he said either, because when he did come out with that, I mean, I'm in a you know various WhatsApp groups with um, uh, Liverpool fans, and I'm like, why has he done that? Um, I just wouldn't have mm. made a thing of it, and it's like, oh, he's trying to influence you know Paul Tierney ahead of the weekend, and it's like... Just, just play the game, you know. But Liverpool, for me, from my point of view, are a better team than Man United. And yes, they're in a bit of shit form at the minute. Um, but I just think that on the day, you know, they can put Man United to the sword if they turn up. And I think that just concentrate on that. Just concentrate on how United are going to set up, how we can counter that, and how we can make sure we come out of that game with three points and not get into the the dramas of how many penalties that that they've won and. And how how you know referees are are favouring them with yep. this? I think it's it's just that that's my personal take on it. I think that let's just play the game of football and let's just take three points off them. I think you're spot on there, Steve. I think it's it's almost an irrelevant debate for Liverpool to be having. I know there's yeah. probably a little bit of edginess there. One because it's a rivalry, and two because Jurgen Klopp loves winning. He's the most miserable man on planet Earth when he loses, and he's and grumpy and he's horrible to listen to in a post-match interview when they've lost. I can't stand listening to him. Everyone loves him with his big cheesy massive teeth and his baseball cap and his glasses hey, when they've won. Hey, hey. But when they lose, he is tough to listen to. But that is just the competitive fire within the man. And, yeah. you know, Sir Alex was the same and Jose's the same when he loses, although he's kind of calmed down a little bit now. But these top, top winners that are just born to win hate losing so much. And I think that's why it comes out when they do end up on the wrong side of a defeat that they do kind of throw their toys out the pram a little bit. But for Jurgen Klopp to be talking about penalties and Manchester United, no doubt Manchester United fans will take that as fuel for their fire and say, well, we've got them rattled, lads. They don't like it. We're coming for their top spot. Now, I think it's still a long way to go in the season yet, but no doubt this is a huge game in the title race and a huge game in in the course of this season. So 
I just wonder whether it is worth Jurgen Klopp even suggesting about Manchester United's penalties. I think Steve's spot on. Liverpool, on the top of their game, are better than Manchester United on the top of their game. And I still think that's a fact. I mean, the people will say, well, look at the league table. That doesn't say that. I think that's beyond the point. The point of the matter is, I think, 100% fully firing Liverpool on all cylinders would still be a Manchester United side at the same level just purely because I think that they've done it for longer over a longer sustained period of time in recent years and they've got slightly better players. Now, I'm not saying that's the way things are going to go at the weekend. Obviously, I don't know. I think this one could go either way, to be honest. Liverpool have got more to lose, I think, because there's a gap to gain and they've got an unbeaten record at home at Anfield. So, I mean, the penalty thing, I don't know whether it's mind games from Klopp. I don't know whether it is just born out of frustration, but I'm absolutely with Steve on this one. Just go there and beat them. That's, That's the best way to silence them. Is to go there and be. Who you're talking a- on the pitch? Absolutely. That cliche, but, I mean, in terms of the wider debate, we want to talk about penalties and and stuff like that. The most Premier League penalties in total since 1992 ever uh, until now have gone to Liverpool. Liverpool have won more penalties than any other club in Premier League history. However, since VAR came in a couple of seasons ago, Manchester United have won more penalties than any other team Mm. so I think that just goes to show that there is a debate to be had here but there's kind of a natural cutoff point and that is the introduction of VAR I think you can almost start again really from from that point onwards we're seeing records broken in terms of penalties given at the moment United broke the previous record they got 14 last season this season I think they've already got 11 or something like that is it purely down to VAR? Are we just going to see more and more penalties? As Yeah, VAR's going to give more penalties, isn't it? Well, yeah. VAR yeah. is going to give more penalties. I mean, it's natural. We're going to see more red cards. We're going to see more penalties. It should do both, though, shouldn't it? It shouldn't, it shouldn't favour one way or the other. If you're looking at stuff forensically, it should, it should neither increase the amount of penalties or decrease the amount of penalties. Because it should really? clear up. Well, yeah, why would, why would it necessarily give away more penalties when people are looking more forensically? Because... because logic suggests in my head that it should discount and rule out as many penalties as it should award them shouldn't it maybe but i mean i I see where you're getting at uh, what you're getting at with that but i'm not sure if i agree to be honest i think we're always going to see more decisions given in favor of penalties because i think that referees are so scared of getting decisions wrong and i don't think you can have fear as a referee because i mean you're going to get stick no matter what that's the line of work that you're in but if you're worried about making the wrong decision, I don't think you should be there in the middle. Mm. Because, I mean, if you can't referee the game with a clear head, then you're in trouble straight away. And VAR will expose you um, if you make a mistake. And I think that's the wrong word that I've even used there, expose, because they are human beings after all, and they will make mistakes. And that's what VAR is there for, to kind of correct any mistakes or anything that the referees have missed. Now, that's the interesting thing for me is... When a passage of play takes place, every single goal is checked by VAR. Now, that's almost like suggesting that every single time the referee is, you know, overseeing a goal in the middle of the park, that they're just checking to check that he's made a mistake. Now, there's no point in the referee even being there, is there? So it's just it's just ridiculous. I think VAR, I mean, I don't want to get into a debate about it. I've spoken about it so many times on the podcast, but <laughs> Too I late, do we're think, in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're in one. I don't think that um I don't think we're gonna see a decrease in penalties awarded because of VAR. I think Manchester United, as you've already highlighted there, Jim, have had more since the introduction of VAR than anyone else. That ties in with the reign of Solskjaer, like Steve mentioned earlier. So I just think that it's one of those things. I mean, in two seasons' time, it might be Aston Villa who've won the most penalties um, Mm -hmm. since VAR came in. I mean, you just... 
You just don't know, do you? It's one of them things where you can't really put your finger on it. You'd argue that the more attacking teams with more attacking players who get more uh, balls into the box or, or dribbles into the box, they're going to win more penalties. I don't know. It's just the way. It's just the way it is. Interestingly, a interesting but ultimately meaningless stat is that if you take out all penalties from the Premier League this season, so if you cancel them all, not just dubious ones or VAR awarded ones, all penalties get taken out of the equation. It puts Manchester City top of the table, Manchester United in second, Everton in third, Liverpool way down in ninth, just below West Ham United, who have had no penalties awarded this season. Just to finish off this little <laughs> conversation. so irrelevant. Oh, oh yeah. It's, it's, it's so pointless. You know what? Absolutely meaningless. <laughs> I, re- I, like I read it. an article before about how, how Liverpool would be worse off without the penalties in, in the games and I was like, I thought, but they've won them penalties legitimately so you can't like take them off them now. And, and penalties are part of football and goals are scored by penalties by a large percentage and it's like, what? I just don't get like... Oh, you 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 wouldn't be as well off if you didn't have your penalties. Well, maybe if we didn't get fouled or people didn't handball it, you know. If your goalkeeper didn't have arms, he would have never <laughs> yeah. saved that one. All that. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's I just think that um, with the way that the VAR has gone in football and the way that I mean, I caught offside, for example, used to be like a fairly decent website. It is laughable now. Some of the content that's on there and some of the arguments that are put forward. And let's, just, let's not slag off the opposition. Uh, <laughs> it's not getting into uh, yeah. a, well, into a you know, slinging match there. Just, well, it's my opinion and f- him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, isn't it? If your auntie had f- you'd be your uncle. Yeah. I mean, penalties count, don't they? So it's like, what's the point of that debate? I mean, penalty goals count. Mm. Every, every, and this is obsession now with stats as well. Oh, this player has scored the most non-penalty goals. Like, Alan Shearer is still miles ahead in terms of the Premier League record goal scoring charts. The bloke scored 50-odd penalties, I reckon. Or maybe, maybe not quite that many, but he scored loads of penalties. Uh, no one's denying how good a striker he was because he scored loads of penalties. Rooney, the same. I mean, yeah, okay, penalties. You'd expect penalty, a striker to slot. merchant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bruno Penandes, Penchester United. <laughs> you know, you get all of these stupid <laughs> things. <that> come <laughs> exactly. <laughs> penalties are a part of the I game. I love all that. Penchester United, Bruno uh, Penandes, I love all that. I, 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 right, that's a bit rich coming from a Liverpool fan. Oh, behave. <laughs> let's, let's wrap up this little section. I just want to talk about, I'll go back to where we started with Marcus Rashford's comments about Jose Mourinho's influence on him in terms of being smart when he's winning free kicks and penalties. Have we seen a little bit of Jose's influence on Harry Kane? this season because we've talked before about his ability to win a free kick that kind of backing into players thing that seems to be a new addition of his game are we seeing harry kane learn the dark arts of voldemort slash Mourinho a little bit <laughs> um i think he's done it for a while I, I don't know whether he did that before Mourinho got there but it certainly seems to have been highlighted more since Mourinho has been the manager of tottenham I just think he's a smart player. Again, it's dangerous. We've spoken on the podcast before about what Harry Kane does is dangerous. Now, going down softly in the box for a penalty isn't dangerous, but it is frustrating. Backing into players when they're jumping over the top of you and taking their legs from underneath them and possibly risking them landing on their head or their neck or somewhere uncomfortable um, is dangerous. It's dangerous. However, it's hard to regulate. And uh, although I think that it is dangerous. I'm not going to deny that it isn't. It's smart too at the same time. And, you know, we talk about players who have got smarts and savvy. Harry Kane is one of those players. I remember reading an article some years ago about his finishing and that he can sort of tell by looking down at the lines on the box whereabouts he is 
in the penalty area or, or you know he uses sort of a technique to kind of scan the region of the pitch that he's in and he knows exactly where to put the ball when he's going for a finish mm. you know he's figured out what the best percentages are to put the ball in a certain spot to beat the goalkeeper and that's why he's so good at finishing chances um you know so things like that the small elements the margins that steve talked about earlier they're massive uh, and you know if harry came back into someone albeit dangerously and the referee gives a free kick on the edge of the 18 yard box and i don't know gareth bale or lucas mora curls one into the top corner and spurs win the game harry kane's job is to get tottenham hotspur to win football matches that, 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 I mean, it goes back to the debate of gamesmanship or professionalism. And for me, if you're a professional footballer, your job is to win football matches for your team. I mean, mm. how you do it is another question. It is just a game after all. Um, cheating is not nice. No one likes it. But some people do it because of the desperation to do their job. And, you know, I don't think that's right personally, but I think it's a debate we're going to be having forever about mm. this game that we know and love, the beautiful games we all call it, because there is a line to be trodden and it's a grey area between gamesmanship, or I don't want to call it cheating, I'll call it gamesmanship, and professionalism. So, yeah, it's an interesting one to be had and I don't think it will go away anytime soon. We're going to talk more about Spurs shortly. We're going to talk about their transfer dealings because we have two weeks left of the transfer window. Some of the rumours are hotting up and we'll cover that off next on Football Social Daily. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Going to wrap up today's podcast with a bit of transfer chat. Two weeks to go in the window, 15 days until we get Jim White shouting the clock is ticking through our TV for 24 hours solid and we are going to start at Spurs and the future of Gareth Bale currently on loan from Real Madrid everyone expected or I think a lot of people expected big things from Gareth Bale but according to the Times it's not really working out and Spurs aren't going to be extending his loan deal he's going to be heading back to Real Madrid at the end of the season are you surprised about how it's gone for Gareth Bale at Spurs, Steve? Yeah, I am, to be fair. Um, I thought that when he signed for Spurs, his body language was really good. He, you know, he looked really happy to be back what, at what he considered home after a very successful but indifferent per, you know, period at Real Madrid. And I just think that he's just not being able to get going, has he? And I think that um, the rigours of the Premier League, the cup competitions, the games coming thick and fast is a bit much for him. Um, I didn't think it would be. I thought he's 31 years old. I thought he, he's in really good condition. But I just think that um, he just has not been able to handle the rigours of it. And I think that, that that's that's a shame. Um, you know, I think he will probably go to a league where the climate and, and the pace of it and, and the schedule certainly suits him a bit better. And he'll have to go somewhere where they can pay a fraction of his wages because I think he's on nearly 300 grand a week, isn't he? You know, at present, something like that. And... Um, it's a shame, really, because he's not been managed really well at Real Madrid and he's he's had a tough time out there, even though he's won a massive amount of trophies. Um, and he'll just want to play football and get a bit of consistency going, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be at Tottenham. When we've seen him play for Spurs on the few occasions he has appeared for them, we've seen flashes of the old Gareth Bale in terms of his distribution, his delivery, his free kicks, Nile, but... 
I think Steve's right. It's just really difficult to see his body standing up to a full season in a league like La Liga again or like the Premier League. So what happens? Is it China? Is it the MLS? I've no idea. But I mean, if you go back to the original talking point, which was will Spurs extend his contract or will he go back to Real Madrid? I think if you were Tottenham, would you? I, I don't think I would. And it's really disappointing because I yeah. I was sort of championing the signing. I thought it would, would work out for Tottenham. I thought it was the, the kind of extra bit of of spice a bit of extra glitter I suppose that they needed to to kind of give them that star-studded feel they've got the new ground they've now got a top-class player in Gareth Bale who they've they've signed back to the club they've already got some top-class talent as we've already mentioned the likes of Son and Kane etc so you know I really thought that it would work out and it's been disappointing although we haven't seen too much of him I think the problem with Bale is we were told when he signed he signed mid-September or late September right and obviously the transfer window ended in October and we were told it would be a month before he was ready. And it was a month before he was ready. And he came on and uh, it, it just didn't really click. And everyone was saying, OK, right, we'll give him a bit of time to get himself settled down, to get himself to bed in. Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. Um, you know, he scored a couple of goals, but it's not the bail that we remember. It, it, you know, it's not the bail that we've seen at Real Madrid. Um and it, I wouldn't say it's been a flop because I still don't think we've seen enough of him. And maybe that tells you everything you need to know because he doesn't really start that many games unless maybe I'm missing something. But I don't remember him starting that many games on the spin. Jose Mourinho seems to prefer other players. And he, you know, he's 31 now. He'll be 32 in the summer. He is an absolutely quality player, no doubt. But I don't know. Is Jose Mourinho kind of only got him in his squad because he needed an escape route from Real Madrid and Daniel Levy loves him from his time before because he made him a load of money by selling him to Madrid in the first place. Was it all just a bit of a, a romance, a bit of a fantasy, kind of stoking an old flame? I mean, these are all legitimate questions that could be asked of Gareth Bale. Quite often it doesn't work out when, when, when players or even managers go back to their old clubs. It very rarely works out. I can't think of too many examples where it's been Yeah, a I mean, success. well, I guess... Um, the only one I can think of straight off the top of my head would be uh, David Luiz at Chelsea, went to PSG, didn't he? Didn't really work out for him at PSG, mm. came back to Chelsea, won the Premier League and another couple of trophies with Chelsea and then went off to Arsenal. That's the only one I can think of where it kind of did work out in gaps between spells. Um, you talk about managers, Eddie Howe did it, didn't he? Bournemouth, Burnley for a season, back to Bournemouth and it worked out. So you do get examples of it of it happening because... Some players just fit in at certain clubs and, and, and this felt like a prime example of he really cut his teeth at Spurs in the Premier League and it felt that when he came back from Real Madrid that he was able just to kind of fall straight back into that mould again. But Spurs are a different club now. They've evolved in that five or six years uh, since Pochettino took over from uh, a decent Premier League club to now a, a, a top side. And yeah, I'm not sure whether Bale will stay or stick around, uh, but certainly it feels like he won't be at Real Madrid and you wouldn't begrudge Jose Mourinho and Tottenham for not extending the contract. I mean, I'm hoping that we'll see more from him because he is a great talent and he's a player that would be an asset to the Premier League when he's fit and firing. So, yeah, I hopefully we do see a bit more from, from Gareth Bale, but would I be shocked if he doesn't stick around? Not really. I'm going to contradict myself slightly because I've thought of an example of when it did work when a player went away and came back. Tony Cotty's second spell at West Ham after moving to Everton in 
what, 1994, something like that. That worked <laughs> out all right. If you've got any examples of players or managers going back to clubs and it working out, at the Sports Social on Twitter, let us know there. We're going to talk about West Ham strikers, though. Continue that little thread because... We are a striker down in East London at the moment. Uh, Seb Eller obviously left a week ago, scored on his debut and got an assist for Ajax last night as he played against FC20. So a good start for Eller in his new career in uh, Holland, but West Ham are very short of firepower. <laughs> Looks like they're getting a little bit closer to signing a striker. Reims Buala Diar, I think is how you pronounce his name. I think it is. It's probably 100% wrong. 24-year-old Sen- Senegalan? Senegalian? Senegalese. Senegalese. 24-year-old guy from Senegal. Uh, he's available for around 15 million <laughs> quid, apparently. I mean, I, I don't think... If, unless I'm wrong, unless you can correct me, I don't think any of us are going to be able to talk with much authority on what this player's like or whether he's adapted to play in the Premier League. And feel free to correct me if, if, if I'm wrong there, boys. No, no. I, I don't know much about him. I know he's well, got a dreadful haircut, but apart from that, I don't know much about him. Well, Jim, it's funny you should ask me about Boulay Adaya because um, I've been watching him his whole career and um, I can... <laughs> I've I've never heard of the guy. No. Never heard of the guy. Let me, let me tell you very quickly what I do know, and it's very little. But it's that he's big, quick. He's strong. He's probably much closer to Mikel Antonio than Sabaler mm. was. Um, you look at his goal tallies through the seasons. He's undoubtedly got talent. He's got an eye for goal. He's scored a hatful this season already. But from what I've seen of him, he's not one of those players who's going to be taking players on, pinging in free kicks. A lot of his goals look quite clumsy, almost like right place at right time. Do you remember Frederick Canute? He played for Freddie Canute. Yeah, he's kind of like looks like a Freddie Canute style player. No, he he's one of those players that looks like he should have played for Portsmouth, but never actually did. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, it was picky on that you had, wasn't it? It was yeah, in a Freddie similar mould yeah. to that. But anyway, Legend. so that's the player that West Ham are going for. Is this a bit of a? Str- I mean, it's, it's West Ham, so it's not strange. But are you in any way shocked that West Ham didn't have this new signing locked up? signed up before letting Allaire go is it is it I mean they, they've dug themselves into a hole here haven't they where not only they could end up finishing the transfer window without the players they need but also clubs know that they are in a desperate situation they're over a barrel and so they're going to end up play, playing paying a premium considering they've just yeah. appointed a porn star to their board of directors I'm not particularly <laughs> surprised at all that they haven't had this uh, signing wrapped up signed sealed and delivered for the last few weeks Jim no I'm not shocked um <laughs> What I will say, just doing a little bit of uh, sort of background research on uh, Bulai Dia, um, 22 goals in 59 appearances for Stade de Rheim in Ligue 1. That is, that's a decent return, to be fair. Not bad at um, all. He's only been there since 2018. He was kind of promoted from the from the reserve, so to speak. And they finished eighth, I think, eighth or ninth a couple of seasons ago, Rheim. And He's seemed to have done the business. 22 in 59 appearances so far, according to the statistics I've got in front of me. So what's that work out? One in three, something like that. So not bad effort uh, from him. Um, he's a decent age. He's 24. You'd expect him to be ready to, to come back into the Premier League. If he's strong, hopefully that would help with the physicality of the top flight. Um, what would be interesting to know is how he kind of matches up in terms of a kind of a tale of the tape, I guess is the best way to describe it with... Um, Seb Allaire because Allaire kind of gave you that that height that physicality that presence up front in terms of putting balls into the box he's not as tall as Allaire um, I think he's just a shade under six foot 
but it's one of those where you just wonder what his his real strengths are and what West Ham's um, sort of v- blueprint is for him. Um, just on whoscored.com, uh, actually, which is a good kind of barometer for, for players' strengths and weaknesses when it comes to their characteristics. Here's the characteristics, Jim. So let me just run the rule over this and see what you make of it. His strengths are his finishing. Apparently, he's a good finisher. His weaknesses are holding on to the ball, aerial duels, passing and crossing. So basically, he's rubbish at everything else apart from putting the ball in the net. So who knows? Well, sometimes you need that, don't you? Are you surprised, Steve, that maybe West Ham haven't gone for someone a bit more tried and tested after the disaster that was Seb Eller? Why not go for a player that has that Premier League experience, who knows what the league's about and who can hit the ground running? Yeah, I'm surprised they've not gone in for Divock Origi from Liverpool. Um, I think they'd probably get him for around 20 million quid at the minute. And I think... You know, the guy's won a lot of honours, he scored a lot of important goals for Liverpool, and I still think that if he gets a run of games, there's a player in there. Um, the problem he's got at, at Liverpool is that he, he's just not going to dislodge any of them front three, and obviously Diogo Jota coming. So I think West Ham could probably be a bit smarter about it and probably go for someone like Origi. I think where West Ham are concerned, they have this knack of going for players where there's no middle ground on it. They either do really well or they spectacularly fail. Um, and I think, you know, Sebastian Allard is a good example of that. 45 million quid. I think on this podcast, we all raised a few eyebrows at that price for him, you know, when he was paid from, I think, did he come from Hoffenheim? Um, somewhere like that. He come from the Bundesliga, Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Think, um, mm. You know, so I think I'd love to know what the strategy is behind it. I think it, there is an element of hit and hope with it and just kind of get someone in and hope they hit the ground running and then everything works out fine. But, you know, Allard was was nowhere near good enough for the Premier League. And I think... You know, Newcastle have got a bit of that with the likes of Joel Linton as well. Um, you know, big money. I think he was from Hoffenheim, wasn't he? And, um, you know, I just hope that someone's got the finger on the pulse and they go, actually, it's 15 million quid well spent because there's a massive risk attached to it, as always. Yeah, interestingly, that Frankfurt side, actually, that had Haller in it and Luka Jovic. Um, Jovic got signed by Real Madrid and Allaire got signed by West Ham. So <laughs> if you're talking about who got the better end of the deal, um, it's probably Jovic. But interestingly enough, um, Jovic has actually gone back to Frankfurt and Allaire has gone to Ajax. So if you're talking about a side that really flourished in the Bundesliga two seasons ago, Eintracht Frankfurt, that duo up front, Jovic and Allaire, was amazing. You know, that partnership was broken up quickly. And um, yeah, unfortunately for them, maybe it was a case of they do work better in tandem than they do alone. Who knows? A couple of seasons ago, we're going to move on now. I We, we talked a lot about the transfer futures of Dendonka. Uh, and he ended up at Wolves in the end. And every time we talked about Dendonka, I, and in my head, I said his name, Dendonka, like Dizzy Rascal Bonkers. Dendonka. And I have a very similar thing with Dea Upamakano. Every time I say Upamakano, I say it in the same style as Gangnam style. <laughs> Upamakano, which is why I'm thrilled <laughs> to be talking about Upamakano again. The 22-year-old <laughs> French international has been the subject of loads of speculation this summer. But apparently RP Leipzig now want 37.4 million quid for him if he's going to move in January. This is a player whose contract is up in the summer. Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Manchester City are all teams that have been linked with him. The Guardian are reporting this one. I mean, this just feels like a you're not getting him until the summer type of move from RB Leipzig. No one's going to play 37.5 million quid for a player who's out of contract in six months on the Nile. Um, no, probably not. But I mean, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I just think that with the way that the finances are 
um, in football at the moment. Uh, you know, I'd be fascinated to see the accounts, um, to be honest, of these Premier League clubs. Uh, Southampton re- released their latest accounts. Uh, they lost 90 million quid last season, which is a massive Oof. amount of money. Um, I'm not sure whether we'll talk about Everton uh, at some point in the near future in terms of the transfer window. We always seem to when the, the window is open. Um, Everton have lost upwards of 150 million quid as well. Uh, so it's just ridiculous, the finances in the Premier League at the moment. But, you know, the, the thing is, the, the clubs with the best transfer strategies go hard and they go early. Um, uh, they, they identify and they get the job done. I mean, you think about Leicester. They, they seem to have tailor-made the signings to replace the players that they've had going out. Um, like Fafana looks like a, an inspired signing for them at the back. Soyuncu, he's been injured. And much like when Maguire left, Soyuncu filled Maguire's shoes as if Maguire wasn't even a part of the club. And Fafana's done very similar to, to Soyuncu when Soyuncu's been injured. So those teams with the best fina- uh, financial and um, transfer strategies know exactly what they're after. Now, this thing about Upa Meccano, um, lots of shouts as to whether he will join a Premier League club uh, I think he will but maybe not yet and January there's always clamour for a big signing in January isn't it it feels like the league needs it some big sort of talking point I don't think we'll see one this season um, I think Fabrizio Romano you mentioned on last week's one of last week's podcasts Jim that um, he suggested that Upa Meccano is going to stay at RB Leipzig pronounce that... it right please Niall Upa Meccano <laughs> Upa Meccano yeah, I mean to be honest <laughs> If Fabrizio Romano says it's happening, that's good enough for me. So mm. I, I can't see him pitching up in the Premier League anytime soon, regardless of contract situations or, or ideals around the best way to structure a package. In terms of a strategy, Steve, as a Liverpool fan, Liverpool need a central defender. Upamecano is one of the hottest prospects in Europe. Do you wait for the summer when he's out of contract and you're battling with the other big boys in terms of offering massive deals and signing on fees? Or do you kind of steal a march on your opposition and pay the 40 million quid now and get it over the line before the competition really hots up it's very simple for me Liverpool haven't got 40 million quid in January to pay in a, stri- uh, a centre half we we need two centre halves at Liverpool because I think there's mm. there's question marks over Joel Matip's fitness he can't play two games in a row um, you know Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk are uh, obviously very serious injuries likely until the end of next se- start of next season if we're lucky Um and I think there's a question mark over Joe Gomez's ability. You know, Liverpool fans aren't generally that convinced on him. And I think that that means we're in the market for two centre-halves. And at the minute, I think, you know, Liverpool uh, have, have lost £100 million in matchday revenue since the start of the COVID pandemic. And Liverpool are just not going to go in the market in January and sign a centre-half. They're going to have to go with Reese Williams and Nat Phillips. That is horrendous because I don't believe any of them are good enough. Um but Jurgen and, and the board at Liverpool are just saying till summer, you know, we're not we're not doing anything. And, you know, mm. whoever you believe Liverpool are saying the line is somewhat interesting up for summer. Um and I think that's that's what they're working on at the minute. Liverpool are working on summer twenty twenty one and I think there will be some movement at Liverpool, not just in defence. I think Mo Salah will move on as well. And I think that Liverpool have, have got their hands full with that at the moment. And will Upper Meccano come to the Premier League? I think if he does, he will come to Liverpool. Um, I think if we went into um, uh, a, a battle with Chelsea and United, I think if he looked at it on sporting reasons, he'd probably go to Liverpool. Um, Bayern Munich are obviously losing Alaba in, in summer to, to an unnamed club at the minute. So they are in the, the market for the centre-half. So... 
Um, I think it'd be Liverpool or Bayern that he goes to, but I think it will be summer. And I think that, um, yeah, if if he can move for nothing in summer, I, mean, I don't think he can move for nothing. I think he's got a, rec- a release clause in summer that kicks in. Um, right, because okay. I think if he could start leave for nothing, he'd be able to do a pre-contract with someone now, wouldn't he? Um, like like Alaba is. Um, mm. So I think that the release clause is probably about 38 million quid, which for someone who's a French international plays week in week out for Leipzig I think that is that is a very small price for him and um, I'd love him at Liverpool God knows we need him at the back and let's see what happens who's he displacing at Liverpool then Steve if he comes in is it Gomez, Gomez. definitely Gomez yeah, yeah all day all day yeah uh, I think Joe Gomez is, is your centre-half you bring off the bench um, I think we need two centre-halves that, that can rotate in and out so I think who they sign and I think they will go big on a centre-half yeah. will be ultimately partner Virgil van Dijk and what's happened to Kostas Chimikas who you signed in the Injured. summer I've not seen any of him since he arrived yeah well he was signed as cover for Robbo wasn't he at left back and um, 11 million quid you know did really well at Olympiacos so it seemed a smart piece of business got COVID-19 which had a lingering effect on him which is uh, it has with a few other players and then he got injured. Um, so the kid has um, has not had a crack of wit really. But mm. again, you know, he needs to be providing really good competition for Andy Robertson because Andy Robertson cannot play every single Premier League minute. As you asked for it, Niall, let's wrap up with a little bit of Everton chat. We'll be quick on this one. But <laughs> there's been some reports from the Liverpool Echo suggesting that Marcel Brands, the Everton director of football, is not expecting any transfer business in terms of incomings in the Everton squad in this window. He's really keen on reducing that very bloated squad size at Everton. It's no shock, really, is it, Steve, that Everton need to balance the books to a certain extent. They've got a lot of players on very large contracts and they just need to reduce that squad size. Definitely. Everton, I think, have been quite reckless in the transfer market in the last couple of years. Well, maybe three years, maybe four years. They've spent a phenomenal amount of money uh, on players and, and they've not really signed any for me, any any amazing quality. Uh, I think they've signed some good players, but nothing that's uh, you know going to blow everyone out the out the water, so to speak. I think Ancelotti coming in is getting more out of that squad because he's a world class manager, uh, and and they've done really well to get Carlo. Um, got to move some of them players on because they they have they've signed some rubbish and. Um, they've paid big money for people. I mean, I, I, you know, Alex Awobi, for example, nearly forty million for Alex Awobi, and you know, mm. what what exactly does he do? Um, with the greatest of respect to him, no one got... saw value in that apart from Alex Awobi. Exactly, that's the only person who thought that know, transfer was a good idea. He's probably on about one hundred and fifty grand a week at Everton, and um, uh, you know, big transfer fee. Arsenal would have been licking the lips at that prospect of, of getting him off there, and I just think that. Carlo will will hone the strategy on it. He'll go, no, I want this player for this position. I want this player for this position because Everton, I don't feel, is fully balanced as a squad yet. Um, so I think it's really interesting. But you know they've been hit with 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 the COVID thing. Obviously, the the Bramley Moore Dock project seems to ground to a halt a little bit, doesn't it? You know we've not really heard much about that in recent times. And um, and and they've got to, they've they've got to move some players on and and trim that squad and chew and mm. chew the fat mm. off the wage bill because I, I stand by the fact and I've said it on the podcast before I think they've been a bit reckless to be honest. They've got thirty two first team players, including those who are out on loan. And you look at some of these players; some of them are, are not registered for the season. Obviously, you can only have twenty five players in your Premier yeah. League squad. I'm looking at the likes of Yannick Balassi. Who remembers him? Like, what's happened to him the last yeah. two seasons? He's still an Everton player. Uh, Mo Bezic, yeah. who I think was on loan at Sheffield United last season, 
isn't registered for Everton this season, still picking up wages. There's a player here, a goalkeeper called Joao Virginia. Um, that means that they've got four first-team goalkeepers. Do they really need four first-team goalkeepers? Um, Niels and Kunku, Jenk uh, uh, Tosin. I know Jenk Tosin scored a goal in the FA Cup, I think it was at the weekend, but I mean, he's been a bit of dead weight really since he picked up an injury. A bit harsh to say it, but there are some other players there where you think they might be better off moving them on. I mean, Tom Davis, there's been rumours whether he might move on to somewhere like Southampton. Fabian Delph, again, always injured. Um, and then out on loan, Theo Walcott, who you'd think they've cut ties with him and just sell him to Southampton come the summer. Um, and Moise Keane, who was, uh, you know, supposedly this exciting proposition, signed from Juventus and now he's on loan at PSG and he seems more comfortable at PSG than he did do, you know, in the whole season or so he had in the Premier League. Jean-Philippe Gabamin, another signing made, I think two summers ago. I can't remember him playing a game. He got a bad knee injury when he first turned up at Everton and hasn't been able to feature since. They've got players who are just not not operating. And, uh, you know, Carlo Ancelotti, as much as he'd like a deep squad to be able to pick from, Everton still tend to rely on the same core crop of players. And I think if you're looking at improving your squad, if you can ship out a few in January, because if you look at Balassi and Besic, if they're unregistered, they can't be used. I mean, they can change the registrations, I think, at some point this month. But the chances are they're not going to be involved. And Balassi's on loan, isn't he? He has been the last few seasons. I think he... He's been on loan since he joined the club pretty much. <laughs> since he joined, like, he had a great couple of seasons at Crystal Palace, then moved to Everton, and I don't think we saw him in the Premier League pretty much since. Well, he's been at Everton since 2016. He spent 18 19 on loan at Villa um, the first half of the season, the second half of 2019 on loan at Anderlecht, and then a little bit of last season on loan at Sporting Lisbon. He's come back right. to Everton and not been involved at all. He's I mean, 31 I... years old. He's got to go. He's another player who is just isn't doing it at the moment. Cut your losses. Everton fans will be disappointed by this news, undoubtedly, because there is, there's areas of that squad that need investment. I'm thinking particularly up front and cover for Dominic Calvert-Lewin, because we saw at the weekend how they they lacked... When Dominic Calvert-Lewin is injured, as he is at the moment, there aren't really many options, particularly with Moise Keane going out on loan. So Everton fans will be disappointed that there isn't going to be investment, but at the same time, they've just got to be patient, haven't they? I suppose, but... You know, they're looking up, aren't they, Everton? I mean, we can sit here and slag off the amount of first-team players that they've got and the fact they do need to cut uh, some players out of their squad and ship some players out and move some players on or whatever you want to say. But no doubt they are still um, definitely in a much sweeter position than they have been in recent seasons. Interesting that Marcel Brands has come out and made a comment because he seems to have got it right in the last you know, couple of windows regarding regarding incomings when actually I think over the course of him being in charge of the uh, of the transfer dealings that the club have made he's made some absolute stinkers in terms of acquisitions um, so yeah uh, you know dis- disappointing I suppose in terms of Everton fans listening to this and hearing us going oh you need to trim your squad but they can feel more confident can't they especially as Steve says with a possible mm. new stadium on the horizon the top quality manager in Carlo Ancelotti looking more likely to be a European prospect again like they were under David Moyes Things are looking rosy for Everton and, you know, it's cost them a bit of money in the background, but mm. that's the price of modern football, I guess. That's it for Football Social Daily today. We'll keep you up to date with all the developments in the transfer news as the window trundles on, like I say, two weeks left until that finally shuts so we can get on with the rest of the season. But we will keep you up to date on the podcast, which is out every single day. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, if this is your first time listening to Football Social Daily, click subscribe however you listen to your podcast, never miss an episode and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave us a review. You might get a shout out on a future show. Steve, Niall, cheers for today.
Nice one, gents. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Bye. Football Social Daily from Sport Social. Find us on Facebook. Search Sport Social. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.